Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, Gym Aware, KBox, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10 meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The KBox and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 137 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Thanks for being here today. And this is a solo show where I'm going to speak on a topic, I guess you would call it improving the workout experience. And so one of the things that I think I've really learned as a coach over the years is I used to be very, 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 I guess I, I really don't know how much I could possibly put more emphasis on it into the ideas behind periodization and sets and reps and exercises and how that all mixed together in kind of this symphony or orchestra to give an athlete their best result over time. Uh, the more I've gone along in the coaching profession, the more I've realized that that is extremely important. But um, the nuances of how you do, uh, how you do your workouts, how you administer them, um, the art of coaching, obviously creating buy-in and all that uh, is important. Uh, but how do you speak to athletes? How do you create the the imagery to them or the sensation to them that allows them to execute the exercise uh, how it's supposed to be done? How do you let that, um, I guess you would call it like the inner animal that's inside of an athlete, that inner um, being of an athlete that can move perfectly and effectively, uh, that's subconscious driven, how do you let that come out? And how do you give an athlete the best experience in light of their, um, I guess, their, their greatest strengths as an athlete? Because I think that we all, and this is uh, probably be, I, I want to open with this is that if you think of an athlete as someone who is broken, they have weak muscles, you need to strengthen, they uh, they need to be taught how to sprint and jump and do all these things that come innately. I think that that, that road leads to its own set of characteristics. Uh, my take on it after being in this industry for not as long as many, but for a little bit, has been that uh, we as athletes have the tools, the innate tools to instinctually uh, execute running and jumping with fantastic technique. Uh, to a point where it's optimal for our own bodies in many cases. And we're, more, we're overcoached more often than we're undercoached. And uh, the way that the brain experiences training, so, um, and, and that, that goes to say that that has a huge impact in how you allow athletes to experience the training process. Um, when you feed the athlete who has these great capabilities the right set, um, not only the right sets and reps and exercises, but also the way that those uh, exercises are designed and distributed, uh, you'll see some really fantastic results. Um, 
and, and maybe uh, I'll, I'll kick this off with a nice little example uh, before, you know, I think that there's that two, three, four minute point in any podcast where people decide uh, if they're going to listen to it or not. Shoot, maybe it's five, 10 seconds. I don't know. Hopefully you're still with me, but but I'll put it this way is um, a, and, and I've seen this play out with athletes uh, many times as well. Uh, but the from a practical example, from a track and field perspective, because track is just you and the the distance or the time or how high is the bar and my um my junior year in high jump uh, my progression through uh high school and high jump i jumped six eight my senior year of high school i i regressed and i i jumped uh well i i jumped a half inch less my freshman year of college i jumped six eight and three quarters my sophomore year and then my junior year i just exploded and i i jumped uh i jumped seven foot and a quarter inch and i improved a ton in all my other marks too it's just a, a year where everything really came together and i could really I was definitely the most athletic I had ever been, and it just was an amazing year full of great lessons. The, the next year, my senior year, uh, I only jumped 6'10". I didn't triple jump as far. Nothing was quite as good. And uh, one of the biggest differences between that junior and senior year specifically, because by my senior year, I, the, the training had been figured out to some degree. There were still a lot of mistakes made. But one of the biggest mistakes made was in the way that the high jump workouts were administered. Uh, which I was the type of athlete that just said, I'm going to go high jump by myself. This had nothing to do with my coach. Um, and so, but I found my junior year that, uh, the bar, the crossbar, if you high jump crossbars, there's like little screws on the side and you can, um, basically the bar, just cause it says six foot on the side of the standard where the readout is, that doesn't mean it's six foot. It may be five ten, it may be six two, depending on how these little adjusters on the standards are set there's a few different like alterations for the thing and so long story short is um i thought when i thought the bar was like six two it was really six one maybe even a teeny bit less and so i i go through that whole fall um thinking that i'm jumping just a little bit higher than i actually am uh and what that did though uh, when i was doing these practices is it um it, it just created this um this sense where i was like wow i'm doing really good like I'm jumping better than I was at this point last year. <laughs> and and that confidence just kept getting me this this hit of dopamine and positive momentum and 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 that was a really important I feel contribution to how well I ended up doing. It's just my mental state was always so positive because I thought I was doing better than I actually was. And I think if I would have gone back and you know it would have been I, I it would have been the actual bar height, maybe I would have strained a little bit more, maybe I wouldn't have uh, gotten the result that I did and and that actually just happened to be my senior year so the next year and this happens I see this in swimming a lot too in working with swimmers now always looking at well I was here at this point last year and what happens when you let that get in your head it's not a good thing and to to continually be we always are competing against ourselves, but when that causes us to strain and kind of disobey these laws of training I guess you can call, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm in a position to create a law of training. I'm not, I'm just, I, it's just, I guess it feels good to say that, but the, all the things I'm going to talk about, that's just my experience, just throwing it out there uh, through this episode, what I consider good training practice. Um, as soon as you get into this mode where you're, you're fighting, you're literally fighting your result from last year to stay on top. Uh, you really start to break, I guess, a lot of those laws. And so, uh, yeah, my, my senior year, long story short, Spent a lot of the year um, being like, okay, I'm going to be more specific in my training efforts, more nervous system driven, less tempo running, less general work. And the the specific work that I did, I, I found that the, the high jump bars were off. So I, I fixed it. So now 6'2 was 6'2, 6'4 was 6'4, 6'4 <laughs> was 6'0. 
And every practice, I would always think, oh, well, I was here last year. I need to be jumping higher than this on this particular approach. And I would take jump after jump after jump, same pathway, just straining, straining, straining. And I got to a point where I just completely hit the wall that, that November. We had started training in September. It was it was a point where I couldn't even make, um, I jumped seven feet the year before, and I couldn't even jump six foot one practice off like a five-step or maybe a rolling in five-step approach. And, and I was just like completely... Um, beside myself with how uh the the uh, i just felt like i was out of shape and i had no pop and i wasn't that strong and and it was um yeah it was that was really uh a, a big point uh, just a re- and, it, and i was it wasn't just the strain but that was a big part of it was the grind that part part where you're just trying so hard to do something and then you flush everything else out of the training process so that everything else is what we're gonna but I'm, I keep saying we, uh, but I, I, maybe I say we, cause collectively, um, I've learned from so many guests and so many great coaches and so many authors. And, and so it's almost like, I don't want to like claim these, all these ideas as my own. Cause they're not, it's just, this is just my, like me as a conduit kind of explaining my experience. But, um, today's episode is about good training. It's about the mental framework that makes an athlete accept training better. Uh, you've heard, Tony Holler, uh, Tony Holler talked about dopamine and PRs and not getting beat uh, a couple episodes ago, which was awesome stuff. Um, we're going to talk about uh, just, yeah, the brain's experience of things, how to frame and how to really kind of like section off workouts and exercises and, and give them to an athlete in a manner that doesn't get them in their own head, where they're not just going to grind and try hard. And, and hard work uh, you know, there's this thing like you call it like a tryhard, right? Like this person who who's a tryhard athlete, and there's a difference between having a really strong work ethic and trying too hard. I believe everyone should have a really strong work ethic. Every athlete, coach, a strong work ethic is to be desired. But the best athletes in the world, uh, when they are doing their sport or skill, they make it look easy. And it's not like they just show up to competition and it looks easy. They they practice it like that. And so uh, I, I think a lot about. How do you how do you create a training system that allows for better movement and that better movement leads to continual progress? Because really when when we strain to do something like I strain to beat where I was last year in high jump on a given day, um, that straining tends to lead to a lot of bad technique and compensations and excessive forebrain or thinking brain activity in a movement that should be uh, subconscious and joyful really like uh, the the um, to me that one of the core tenets of athleticism is the joy you get from setting a PR and just seeing what your body can do and enjoying movement. And so uh, the first thing I, I want to talk about is I was reading um, is I would call it the experiential mode versus the default mode uh, brain network. Uh, a lot of these things I'm going to talk about. Actually, I've written a, I'm writing an article series on Just Fly Sports now. If you go to JustFlySports.com, uh, which it's funny because I, I feel like this podcast has actually gotten to the point where some people don't really even go to the website there is a website justflysports.com i do have a blog there and so you anyways i was i've been writing a few series of of all the things that kind of pop into my head during during the course of my workouts like these moments of intuition and then expanding on them a little bit and one of the points was um the the default brain network versus the experiential brain network and i got this from dr mike uh, russell i was actually I, i caught an article of his I don't read T Nation, but I, I was browsing through it just because I'm kind of curious what's popular there and how they sort their articles. And I came across this um, article by Dr. Mike Russell talking about the default versus experiential brain network. I ended up buying a, the book about that on uh, Blinkist, just the summary. And uh, in short, you need to train 
in your experiential brain network. You do not want to train in your default brain network. So what is the difference between those two? Uh, default mode, just imagine that you're kind of like, uh, I guess you could say like you're driving down the road. You're not really paying attention to, uh, you, everything's on autopilot basically. Uh, you just kind of go into this routine. Uh, in, in a training perspective, it would just be, you're just gonna go run laps and every time you're gonna try to hit you know, 75 seconds every time you run around and not really thinking about much outside of the clock. And, and that's just how you're gonna go along. Uh, it would be the same thing, honestly, as, as going out and trying to high jump an inch higher than you did last time. I'm going to high jump 6'4 today. I did 6'3 last week. I have to do 6'4. It is a number-oriented goal. Um, and a, a good um, example of this as well is like if you watch swimmers, like I've been around swimmers a little bit, and if you watch um, like particular groups of swimmers, like people who are really like a really like over-distance type grouping, um, and, and swimming is notorious for just insane yardages. You'll see people who are just surviving. They're just kind of slogging around. Each turn is kind of blah. Like there's not really a huge intent to it. They're just doing the work. It's like, here's the workout, just do it. <laughs> uh, experiential would be if there is, uh, in, I guess it's maybe something that's more pertinent, but uh, in track and field, it'd be the difference between running eight 200s and eight 200s um, over hurdles or take that 1600 meters you sprinted and look at the 1600 meters of sprinting you might get when playing a game of football and how much experience how much how much um, reaction do you have to make in that game of football uh, how many minute like and uh, how, how much is going on and how much is exciting your neural network versus just running and there's no there's it's no wonder that like high jumpers will roll off the basketball court and jump their PR and then they actually train like and they they just they just high jump and they don't say stop playing basketball and training switches from experiential to default mode it, it switches to just a, a plus b equals c do this run up jump over the bar just go as high as you can this practice the end and whereas a game of basketball there's there's a ton of different decisions and variabilities and it's it's immersive and you are you're immersed in the experience of playing and so i i think a lot about and i've always been like this i've always realized because it was not long after i um quit uh when i stopped uh, high school went to college i stopped playing basketball and started track and and I, I found very quickly, like, I didn't play basketball much. I was just training with the track team. And what I found was that I, I couldn't dunk anymore the first time I tried to play basketball. And it was almost like I needed to play basketball a few games to be able to dunk again. And that dunking reciprocally helped my high jumping. And so it was those own experiences of my own that I really started to take into uh, my athletics and, and my athletic coaching. And when I would find athletes and, and they were struggling and, and just like, I remember I would have high jumpers who were basketball players. And if they were kind of feeling like their nervous system was fried, I'd just say, well, just go shoot around and do some layups and run up and down the court for a half hour, 45 minutes. And that very often did the trick. And, and it's like, these are unconventional things. Right. And so, uh, it, high, igniting that, that experience where you, you have these challenges, these sensory challenges, uh, same thing too, as like, um, doing dunk training, basketball dunk training, where you're doing you know 360s or trying to do between the legs, and there's a lot more elements of skill present than just jump as high as you can. When something becomes just do this as hard as you can, just do this as far as you can, just do this as fast as you can, as high as you can, and that's the only thing, and it's a one and zero binary equation, and the only thing to put in is effort. You're gonna get 
uh, burnt out pretty quickly. Your nervous system just doesn't accept that very well. And maybe it's because you start to bring in more compensations. That could certainly be one thing. You're bringing in compensations. It could be labeled as uh, unhealthy from a survival standpoint. You're at higher risk of hurting yourself. Or maybe it's the repetitive pattern over and over again from one specific joint uh, load on your joints. It could be that. But every time we do that, it just it's it's difficult. Um, it can be difficult to continue to gain in that scenario. And now I, I think there are training situations where. Uh, like, I mean, even look at previous guest Tony Holler and Feed the Cats. They do a fairly repetitive sprint and, and a very fast, explosive sprint training system. Um, and I think sprint training, maybe I think jump training is a little bit more affected by this than sprinting, uh, just in my experience. And then he has the X Factor Day with a variety, plyometrics, a variety jump day. And I think it's, it is that thing, right? The jump day should be a higher variety because if you do the same jumping over and over and over again, that really... Um, has these high impact forces and then he also uh, Tony also has that dopamine enhancing rank record and publish and the, the team environment that he creates and I think that that also has a really powerful effect in staving off the, the nervous system getting stagnant from doing a similar program over and over again I really do think that jumping probably has a little bit more um, in this uh, than the sprinting world but I I'd even even sprinting for me uh, I was faster when I played uh, when I play basketball and have that elastic strength gain from basketball. That's important for me, and it's similar to the X factor. But either way you look at it, that that variety and the explosive skill strength is the spice of life. And I do want to know. I don't believe all training should be like 100% crazy variety and all different tools and toys. There needs to be meat and potatoes sets and reps that are done. Uh, I just think that paying attention to the mindset and environment and buy-in by which those sets and reps are performed is really important. And then knowing when to selectively utilize much more exploratory type work versus the typical meat and potatoes type work. I think it's all important. I just think how we frame it and how we look at it is a very important factor. And so uh, a few other like kind of uh, scenarios where you can really see that one is the, the ruse on long jump study that I highlight a lot in my writing where and I've probably talked about it even in this podcast in a Q&A, but where long, there was two groups of long jumpers and one group, they just jumped as far as they could every single time. And another group had kind of like a, a golf game, if you will, like where they had different, different distances. They had to jump at different targets. They had to jump uh, each time rather than just going all out. And at the end of the day, the group that did the different jumps, which is more experiential, uh, by nature, they ended up jumping farther because I, I think the brain just gets sick of just, just try as hard as you can every time. Uh, same thing, Kier Wenham Flat was telling me of a coach uh, who did the stress inoculation with uh, like a flying 10, and they would have like a flying 10 uh, golf uh, where you didn't have, we're trying to go as fast as you could. Um, you would just try to hit particular times instead of all out, which is really the same principle as the long jump study. And I think it has um, inroads to possibilities for sprinting and just maximal sprint ability as well, especially in probably a track and field situation where it is very largely just go as fast as you can quite often. I do think there's ramifications there. And I need to get back in touch with that coach as well, a brilliant mind, whoever uh, came up with that idea with the stress inoculation and the timing gate golf. Uh, another thing too, and you hear this is... Um, and this is a crazy one, right? But it's it's um, people who claim to be able to that low rim dunking. If people are dunkers and they're trying to you know dunk as well as they can on a ten foot hoop, that low rim dunking uh, improves their vertical max vertical jump, which seems crazy because it's a low rim. It's not as high as a ten foot rim, 
Well, now what's the difference here is the 10 foot rim is probably more experiential because there's more possibilities of tricks you can do. You can do tricks you couldn't before on a higher rim. You're not thinking about just jumping as high as you can. You're more drawn to the experience of what trick are you gonna do and now you can land dunks that you couldn't before. You're getting a dopamine rush. The effect of the brain on the low rim dunk is really beneficial on the high rim. And it's also almost like a same but different too. And and maybe the same but different being like uh, I get what I got from Easy Strength, Dan, John, and Pavel, and this this brilliant idea of like like Tommy Kono being a uh, Olympic lifter, uh, but then doing bodybuilding in the off season just just for fun for a few months before he gets back into Olympic lifting, still working strength but in a totally different context, and then he'll go back to being an Olympic lifter. Or you could look at a basketball player playing volleyball, or a track athlete playing basketball or football. Um, you're you're the same, the same thing, but it's experienced by the athlete, by the athlete's brain in a different manner. And obviously, the, the movement variety that comes with that is just massive. Uh, the one thing that I like personally is uh, doing, if, if I do do tempo, and I talked about this in the Tony Holler podcast, 5x200, uh, I don't mind that stuff. When I was my best at high jump, uh, I was doing a lot of like 6, 7, 8x200s and 3, 4, 5x300s. And I'd run my best 300, actually, of those that year I jumped seven feet, but those, those tempo days, I never strained at all. I just was like, I'm just going to be as relaxed as I can and do the work and not worry about being fast stuff. I had done the, the couple of years before I would strain on the tempo of the years before, and it didn't help me out. And I realized that tempo is more or less for, for jumpers. It's just a, uh, a couple of benefits, elasticity. Uh, it has like electrical resistance benefits. I believe uh, if you read Starzinski's work for people who maybe are a little bigger, heavier, have more muscle mass, not that I have a ton of muscle mass, but I think if you approach it the right manner, the non-grinding manner, it has benefits. But throw hurdles in there, and it's a totally different activity. It's, it just went from default to experiential. And because every so, now and then, you got to jump over a hurdle. And so there's always a way to engage your brain. And, and you, you look at some the way some athletes are, like a type uh, 1B like myself or a 2A might love that. A type 3 would probably hate it. <laughs> so you have to look at what lights an athlete's brain up. Uh, I think it's just different. For, for everybody and so uh, and and finally uh, the whole like experience thing I think and you heard Jeremy Frisch say this a few podcasts ago and I think this is just solid gold is like when you can trick athletes <laughs> quote unquote into doing exercise uh, and he was talking about a game uh, with young athletes where they'd have to like like run and then do a squat like under a hurdle I, I don't remember the exact game but it was something where they the, the athlete wouldn't really actively realize how many squats they were actually doing. It's the, the fun and the game, the gamification of it, if you will. Um, that is a word. I think that the app world is definitely seeing that. But the, the gamification of training allows people uh, to experience more reps and sets uh, than they would if they were actually thinking, okay, now I've done eight squats. Now I've done nine squats. And, and I've always said this too, is that the plyometric load experience through, say, a game of basketball or volleyball is far, far, far different than the plyometric load through a series of depth jumps or hurdle hops or whatever. And and the, the again, the experiential effect of that is huge. And part of it too, and I, and I haven't, I, I'm realizing this more the more I work with the Darien Bar, is that um, a lot of those jumps in volleyball and basketball follow the waveform that is more conducive to um, j- healthy joints and the way body the body naturally transfers energy, which is big, little, big, little type movements. Like you would take a big uh, second to last step into a running two leg jump. Uh, then your feet would come close together for the last step. That's the little. 
and then you would jump up in a big manner. That's the big. Um, and versus like if you're doing like a bunch of depth jumps or hurdle hops, it's usually just like big, big, big. <laughs> and those those waveforms are a lot more taxing on the body than the big little waveforms. So not only in in basketball and volleyball and and football or whatever sport you're playing, you have the you have like these these more naturally occurring big little waveforms, uh, but you also have it in a different experience. So my goal has always been, well, how can we take that that um, entity? How can we take that thing and make our plyometrics more like that? I think there's a lot of ways to do it. I think it's limited, really, only by our creativity in many ways. But it's uh, in my even in my workouts now, I have something I almost call it like fun plyometric day, where I have to literally invent like a new way of doing a plyometric or like one I always liked was um, and and this was a good waveform plyometric. If you work with track athletes, it's a cool one where you do the two like line up like two little thirty inch hurdles and you jump over the two thirty inch hurdles quickly, and then you have a high jump bar next to it. And that's like the big. So you basically go little, little, big. And so the and the two hops are low. They're not high. They're just like low, quick hops. And then you go into a big jump over the, the high jump bar. Um, my best when I jumped seven feet was, uh, I think, four feet, eight inches, whatever that kind of comes out to. Um, and that was uh, that was way, way up from the year before. And I don't, I don't know how much better my, my regular old depth jumps necessarily were, but I feel like the better we get at that waveform stuff, that matches the little big and, and whatever that is in your plyometric arsenal that matches that, the better we get at that stuff, I think the better we can get at actual sport movement that tends to follow that. So uh, that is, uh, that's a big idea. That's my, my, first, uh, my first bit in this whole experiential world. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Uh, the the next and I, I wrote about this in my um, my my articles my I call them the thought melee because it's like a it's almost like this flurry of thoughts that's always coming to me I really couldn't come up with an amazing name for this series but uh, go ahead and check it out on the website but it's how um, the easy strength principles and this is in the same vein how does easy strength fit into speed and power training and easy strength is just that um, you know Dan John and Powell wrote the book amazing book uh, it's a must read it's cheap on kindle like it, it's it's a, it's almost a crime if you're a sports performance or a coach or a professional to not have read it in some ways uh, but it talks about the big thing that that i've taken from that book is minimal effective dose higher frequency of work uh which again is a little bit suited towards the 1a 1b maybe 2a end of the spectrum if you're looking at neurotyping um but it, it works for anybody uh and then um uh, minimum effective dose and then but but it's the attitude and the mentality and the, the execution of each set that is really the difference maker so take take an athlete who's about to do a set of back squats and they have their five rep max on the bar um, and there's two ways of experiencing that load one way is relax cool calm not getting emotionally amped up just walk under the bar and do two or three reps without straining the third one if you do a third one put the bar back no worries the second way of doing it, get emotionally amped up, you know, slap the chalk, maybe have someone slap your back, stomp around a little bit, get amped up, get the bar, do four reps, grind out a fifth rep, think about doing the sixth rep, but then put it back and you're done. Now, it doesn't seem like it's not a huge change, right? Two reps difference, maybe three between the two. But the way that the body processes the stress of the second way you did it is actually immense to the point where that that stressful load is going to dig into the next day's workout. 
it, when you're caught in the moment, you don't feel it. And, and it really just plays into the subtleties that is training, that is working out. Uh, Darian Barr has said something a few weeks ago to me that I will always carry with me. And that's uh, ripples become waves. And he was talking about it in the sense of the little nuances of joint movement and joint position in running and jumping will make a big difference um, as like, for example, as you go along in a sprint, the way that you set up your arches and your feet to get out of your acceleration will make a big difference at, and you'll start to see it manifest itself the further you go along. It becomes a wave and now we notice it. So that that's that's huge to me. But And that ripples to waves goes beyond even just, just we see how the subtleties of movement and the best coaches are those who can see the subtleties and that's where that coach's eye comes in. Uh, but it also manifests itself in the subtlety of the mental state, the subtlety of an athlete who knows that they want to train just enough to preserve the next day and that they can make that next. They want to make the next day good and they don't want to eat into the next day. And they know that subtle little difference through the awareness of what they need to do to make that happen. Um, I was also talking a little bit, too, about just awareness in general in a workout on the level of the individual. I do think there's a lot uh, riding on the coach on when to cut a set, when to say we're not jumping anymore today, to say, no, I don't want you doing that fifth sprint. Um, there is a lot riding on the coach, but I also think there's a little bit in the level of the athlete and the awareness of the athlete. Uh, and whether you're a coach or an athlete listening to this, if you're a coach, obviously, no, like, uh, how do we help our athletes have a really good awareness of, of their own system and how they're going to respond? And when is that tipping point in the sets or the reps or the jumps or the workouts where you know it's time to just shut it down and go home and rest up and get and uh, I think that awareness has improved the more we can make we can really be present truly present in a workout I wrote about this on my first uh, week thought melee melee <laughs> installation one but this idea of and and you hear Arnold Schwarzenegger talk about this all these guys on their phones working out um, every time I do go to a public gym to work out I used to go to a rock climbing gym now I, I don't go to Sometimes I, when I'm like visiting the in-laws, I'll go to like a big health flex and it's just, it is just crazy to see people, they'll do a set of arm curls or whatever, or squats and bench. And then they sit there on their phone and they, you know, I don't know whatever they're doing. And then they go do the next set and then they sit there on the phone and then they go to the next thing. But it's like, to me, I'm like, what? Well, one, I mean, how much does that just put your workout in default mode? You know, do sets and reps then get the dopamine hit off your phone, not off your workout. Uh, it's like, uh, and, and and I really do like to think of a workout as a meditation, um, just being fully immersed in what you're doing. And, but I, I, I this kind of came to me during a workout was like, as an athlete, as having the ownership of the workout from the athlete end, to be fully immersed in the workout where you know that point, that switch where you need to stop the workout, where you need to end the sprints and and uh, where you need to not perhaps not do another set um, to know that point intuitively on an intuitive level does takes a level of awareness. And I think it's a level of awareness that can be taught and worked on uh, to be immersed in that workout. And so I have a few ideas for how to be immersed in the workout on that blog post. Um, one of the things I do like is I like Paul Check's working in idea. I'm a big fan of Paul Check, and I think that he has some really good stuff with that where so if you just do working in uh, or, or just breathing or just uh, one of my favorites is uh, like um, Elliot Hulse is like bioenergetic stool breathing. I still like to set up a rear foot elevated split squat and just do good deep breathing between my sets because um, one, I just need to do it anyways. Uh, but it's just it, it just keeps you in a really good state throughout the workout. And I think it also helps the thoughts that come to me during the workout. So uh, that being said, I'm getting away from the, the easy strength thing a little bit, but it's also 
that mentality of of knowing when to end the set and and the elite powerlifters dan john and pavel talk about the elite season powerlifters know are the ones who know to do a three when they could have five that weight they're smart and they don't want to ruin they don't want to ruin tomorrow by what they do today and so i think about this in the sense of speed training too and and having that like intuitive feel on how to uh, but how do you make a, spe- a sprint set easier is, I guess, what I'm getting at, right? Because sprinting is all out. Sprinting is max. Um, to me, it's more so just, again, like I talked about before, it's getting away from the, the try as hard as you can this sprint element. And more so, how will I find a new way to experience this, this sprint uh, mindset? How do I find a new way to experience this flying 10, to experience this 30 meters? Because, uh, I mean, if you've watched everyone, anyone do a flying 10, you know that the easiest way to not run fast is just to try harder. <laughs> that never works. Like Charlie Francis talked about that. He talked about athletes will run faster when it's a 9 out of 10 effort than a 10 out of 10 effort. And just that being a starting point is a great place. Just give me a 9 out of 10 effort. Give me a 90% effort. If you want to turn it up, maybe give me a 91% effort. Uh, but what I found is I really like doing, and, and I think that there's a lot of cool like training means and modalities that are out there now that make you you able to experience a sprint in different ways um like i i wear a darian bars insoles a lot modified footwear that allows you to experience a sprint in a different way from the ground up which is really cool um i think that the exit what exogen is doing with the exogen suit these little teeny fusiform weights create these little subtle sensations that you can feel differently um even something as simple as uh, running like with one arm and and seeing how that arm works different and just paying attention to how it works that's like the inner game of tennis you don't try so hard you just pay attention to things and uh and then you can perhaps exaggerate those things if you feel like it's beneficial um just playing around with like david wex pulsers and how to a different you know manipulations asymmetrically one arm the other one weight in a different you know a lightweight in one hand a heavyweight in the other uh just playing around with different sensations uh, allows a fuller richer experience that is you're you're kind of not emotionally getting fired up and just banging your head against the wall to go faster uh but you're you're creating a sensory environment that again allows you to remain in that experiential network and you're not blowing your circuits and you're not just kind of pounding at the ceiling um just hoping to break through but you're you're really just creating this robust full uh, use of your athletic abilities so that was something that i had thought about and i think is as uh, an important idea so uh the the next thing i wanted to talk about in improving like the workout experience the way the athletes experience things is i know there's a lot of strength coaches out there and i've given a lot of track references and so if you're still with me, <laughs> um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the weight room and something that I think is a really interesting piece and, and highly debated is the Olympic lifts. Uh, a lot of coaches do them. A lot of coaches don't do them. Um, I do believe that they are easy to teach, uh, but I also believe that a lot of athletes, if you do the Olympic lifts and you were not taught them correctly, and basically you're lifting the weight from the floor to your shoulders in kind of one big smooth pull um i don't think that's very conducive to good athleticism i think you could if you lifted like that you're just putting excess noise in the system you may be being explosive in some sense but it's not a sense of if you looked at the waveform of that clean it's not a waveform that transfers to athleticism if we look at things if we look at exercise and movement in terms of waves and vibrations and energy like nikola tesla talks about uh, I like to look at cleans as like an Olympic lifts as a waveform, just like anything else. And they should be taught as a waveform, which means you have to hit a second pole. Now, if uh, the second pole being when the bar passes the knees, the knees subtly rebend, 
I'm going to spit out the NSCA's guidelines here, right? Like the knees suddenly rebend, the hamstrings stretch load, then the energy is unloaded as the knees move forward and the bar brushes the thighs or connects with the thighs. And then that connection turns into this upward impulse, this quick extension of the hip, knees, and ankles. And, um, and the, the reversal of that is the catch. And so you almost could look at the, that waveform as a big. Uh, the big is the movement that gets the bar from the floor to the knees. The little is the really quick hit that quick pop of the knees shooting forward is the little and then the biggest dropping under to catch. And so just kind of reframing your mind around that I think is cool. And, and just also like I would challenge and I'm challenging myself more this too is watching the subtleties just to be able to watch an athlete do Olympic lifts and be like, and see what kind of athlete they are just by how fast can they twitch into that second pole? How good of a connection do they get in that second pole? How fast can they relax muscles to let the knees come forward appropriately in loading and unloading elastic energy. And I mean, that's it, it, that's what makes an Olympic lift is the unloading and unloading of elastic energy in a good waveform. And and so I'm, I've been thinking a lot, I was listening to like Jerome Simeon talking about how he coaches Romanian deadlifts and how he doesn't really like giving like these internal cues or put your limb here, sit your butt back, do this. He'll just pinch the skin on the athlete's back and let them do a hinge. And they get to use sensory information to uh, execute the lift better. And that is where it's at. Uh, it, it, there's the whole internal and external cue universe. Obviously, external is better than internal. But you could still mess up external cues. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the push the ground away cue because it can overpower the Achilles tendon and, and interfere with the timing of the Achilles unloading. And and I, I I'm just not a big fan of it. I'm not saying there's situations where it's not going to work or help an athlete improve their time, but I just think from from a principal perspective uh, and the timing of the Achilles and, and the kind of that pulsing action of running, I I just don't don't really use it. And I, I feel like there's so just so just because the cue is external, I don't believe it is the optimal. I think the best that we can get really in many senses is we can provide an athlete a, a sensory expective a sensory experience, and they they can work off of a feeling and let their body be instinctual. Um, I'm not saying there's not uh, a time for external cues or maybe even sometimes with internal cues. I know in more like a rehab setting type thing I, and uh, and just a really fundamental, even in extreme ISOs, I'll use extreme, I'll use internal cues on those types of things. And uh, But anyways, I kind of digress a little bit. I, I So with the Olympic lifting, I'm, I'm getting to a place where it's like, well, how do you teach that second pull? And, and I think I've kind of come up with a system I feel like works really well and I've been using it for about three or four years with swimmers who probably would be very branded as not the most adept athletes on land, but the majority of my swimmers have a pretty good second pole. They get a good uh, elastic transfer as they move over the floor to the past the knees and then they can unload and unload energy and connect it. And I, and I started to realize this too as I realized that the guys, this is before I really took a big interest in it, but I noticed that the guys who were getting a good second pole and could get that little ping and that little quick brush off the bar tended to be just better swimmers and better athletes than those who, who didn't. And so, I mean, correlation does not mean causation, but I took it upon myself at that point to say, hey, um, I, I really want to start teaching athletes to do this in an energy transfer-based manner. And so really, and this was before I knew a lot of the things I knew now, but I really hit it from a sensory perspective. So we went through a lot of like slow tempo, 505, uh, RDLs, isometric holds at various positions along the path that you would clean the bar. Um, and then 
and then maybe even like some really slow transitions between those just so people could feel where they needed to be at particular points in time. But once that was established, a lot of the work that we would do with trying to kind of get that second pole would be just for them to have the bar at various places along the mid thigh um, and just working on that brush or the bump, trying to feel them get a bump of the bar into a lift. And the best way I can describe it is basically, you know, you're in the, you're in that uh, hinge position and it would be where the bar is coming up uh, about the midpoint of your thighs and you would have the practice straightening their legs, stretching the hamstrings and then unloading that into the bar and then practicing carrying that unloading. What does it feel like to unload your hamstrings? What does it feel like to connect with the bar? Not trying to overhit it, but just trying to connect with it as a sensory piece, an alarm. And then how do you connect that with an upward uh, the upward motion of the hips, knees, and ankles extending. So basically, just trying to connect a bump to a jump. And so, again, it's funny because it's like all this to a lift that isn't even your sport, right? Uh, but I, I love motor learning and I love the ways that we teach athletes things. And I think I've seen it pay really good dividends in the way that athletes can transfer energy into the bar and just be more be more athletic. So it's like if you're going to use the Olympic lifts, um, I really truly believe that they shouldn't just be used to get the bar from point A to point B with the most amount of weight. I actually think that can set you backwards in jumping and sprinting. And I know it did for myself. Um, my 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 sophomore year of college, I, I got my clean all the way up to 245 uh, when I and I only jumped six eight and barely, and I was slow. I was not a fast athlete that year. I I don't even want to say what my long jump was. It was terrible. Whereas in high school, my max clean was like one eighty five, and I high jumped uh, six eight and a half with bad technique, way worse technique than my sophomore year. I long jumped like a foot and a half farther, could dunk way better, was generally just a much better athlete, and uh, my clean wasn't as good. And the fact of the matter was, is I improved my max, but the waveform of that clean, the way I improved it, was garbage. And I mean, obviously we can take a really simple and qualitative or quantitative approach and we can look at um, uh, Brian Mann's work with the velocity and how far do we let the bar from the body. I do think that does fit with the energy transfer. Um, athlete who has good harmonics on the bar, gets a good second pull, is going to have it pretty close to the body and it's going to move at higher speeds. So the question then is, well, how do you really optimize it? How do you coach the lift that you get to that point? So I think by using the, the sensory of feeling the bar and, and feeling how you can carry that into a jump uh, can make a big difference for athletes. So uh, yeah, I, that's that's something that I think I've, I've been thinking about a lot. And uh, so one of the, the last thing too is I think, uh, you know, people talk about like uh, some people, I, I, I think any tool is only as good as you can move. I don't not, I don't think, I am not against any lift. I, I'm not against like, I just think there's always context for each lift and it's how you do each lift. I don't think deep squats are terrible. I think it's how you do them. And it's also when you do them and how much you do them and how much you push the envelope. I don't think hang cleans are bad. I don't think full cleans are bad. <laughs> I, again, I think it's the harmonics. It's the, if you're going to do a full clean, how fast can you get under the bar after that impact, that, that second pull? How fast can you reverse that? And can you get a really clean waveform impulse? Can you get an impulse that reflects what happens in acceleration sprinting? That's why uh, I think an Olympic lifter that does a lift in a particular manner does have really awesome acceleration. There's probably a lot of things that show up. Um, I talk about this in my book, Speed Strength, too. You can see this, and sometimes there's the you'll see the Olympic lifter, the sprinter, who has amazing acceleration, and then they're doing cleans, and they're almost looking to stop that, that pull short, that pull in the clean. It looks like it stopped short, and then they quickly squat under it and catch it. But then you watch them accelerate, and it's the exact same thing. And again, I don't believe in full triple extension uh, or teaching it, 
for sprinters. I do think some uh, sprinters do it. Like Ben Johnson, as Darian Bars taught me, was tight jointed. It was just easy and natural for him to get to triple extension. But for a lot, and then he was so tight jointed and fast, he could recycle that triple extension and and keep that energy without losing it. If you coach someone to triple extend, it's wasted energy because they lose the energy out the back of that straight leg, and they can't get that leg back in front fast enough. Um, so when you see someone who almost cuts that Olympic lift pole just a little bit short and gets under it fast, they're just recycling energy fast. It shows up in their sprinting. It's all how you do it. There's no lift that's awesome or bad. Like it's all in context. I mean, I, I don't, um, yeah, so I'm not going to really sit here and say, Oh, never do, never do this lift. Never do that lift. It's all, it's all what you're doing with it. I do think there's lifts that are better than others. And there's also lifts that are simpler than others. And, uh, I will always cater towards a simpler lift. I always cater towards a hex bar deadlift over a barbell deadlift with a bar in front of you. I just think one is simpler and more straightforward for the athlete and makes more sense. Uh, but again, it's it's all it's all about the waveforms. Uh, I also think that too. And I was this was something I've been thinking about since the since the Tony Holler episode and the the dopamine and and everything that comes with that is just the way that you uh, promote or have athletes experience personal bests in the weight room. Uh, one thing I've been doing recently is looking at the Kaiser jumper, which is an awesome way to assess power. And but and I've used it a lot. I use it a lot with swimmers. Um, I've used it in the past with track athletes quite a bit, and I've always feel like there's some good value in it. And but one thing that you you tend to see, and that I always try, I always try to avoid this. This I always try to create my training in a way that an athlete every time they do that jumper is going to see a higher um, output than the week before, either through letting them put a little bit more weight on it. Um, or just making sure that it fits with the training progression that I know they'll be in a better place, hopefully. And if I know they won't be in a better place, then we don't, uh, we don't go for numbers. We'll cover up the, or if it's a few weeks before the, the conference meet, maybe we'll just cover up the numbers. Cause I don't want them to see it. Cause if they see something that's lower than they like, then it's going to get in their head. So we just cover them up. Uh, but I've also had this idea of modifying the way you do like a Kaiser jumper, like, like doing three little twitch reps at the bottom and then exploding up. And, and then saying, okay, you set a PR in that. That's awesome. Like, good job. Like, and then saying, well, this transfer probably transfers more to athletic qualities than just a straight up Kaiser jump. And just because it's more impulse driven and even a swim start for the sake of swimmers, even swim starts and off the walls is it does come down to that initial impulse of that critical joint angle where the whole movement starts, even though the movement does extend in this exaggerated manner that fits with the water. Um, but that was something I thought I kind of thought of that I think is pretty cool in the way that we just frame ordinary lifts and we frame personal bests. And I think our goal really, as Tony Holler was talking about in his bigger, faster, stronger PR system meets feed the cats is how do we find ways, no matter what our environment to constantly feed our athletes, personal bests and ways they can always see improvement in whatever they're doing. So we really limit the chances where they're second guessing themselves and, and comparing themselves to where they were a few weeks ago. And, uh, you know, granted there's always, you know, it's always important to look at like, if your lifestyle is bad, you're not sleeping, you're stressed out, there's something you need to fix with your nutrition. Obviously, you, you probably don't want athletes to totally live in like a, a, a fake a fake thought that they don't need to fix any of that stuff. But uh, all that being said, uh, you need to just find ways to creatively keep athletes on that PR train, um, I think. I mean, there's, all, there's always different ways to put it too. I mean, you look at the, how successful the Bonderchuk system is, right? And how awesome that system has been for so many athletes. And clearly those athletes are bought into the process too, but you're not going to see, you're going to see yourself rise and then fall. But to me, it's always like, 
just the 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 power of the system and the buy-in the fact that athletes can see their performance drop off drop off drop off even right away someone whose reaction goes like that and then come back up and exceed it is a really special and cool thing to me but i think that that also comes with the the athlete and coach that they know what's coming they know what to expect because of the groundwork laid by great coaches and seeing how this system lays out so i mean as long as the buy-in's there and you can mitigate if there isn't a pr and you can mitigate that and you can show how it's part of the system that you didn't pr and why and how we're going to go and where we're going to go then that's awesome but if you don't work on that bonder chuck system i do think that again just kind of constantly be thinking about ways to give athletes prs and different movements is uh very important uh so so that all that being said, uh, the last thing I want to kind of leave you guys with, and not not a super long episode today, but just long enough to kind of get some thoughts and ideas that I, that have been kind of floating around in the dome, things I've been implementing and training again. Um, I think a lot of people ask me kind of where I've gone with a lot of the information and these ideas throughout the guests and just my own my own reading and experience. But it's how do you you structure the workout in a way that gives an athlete their best uh, their best workout, their best experience? How do we stimulate the brain chemistry in a way that's going to give them the, the optimal system and experience. And so uh, I'll share probably what I've been doing with like my tennis team. And that's, this is, is uh, we tend to, and just like James Smith had talked about starting out with the perception reaction work. Um, they don't, they are, tennis is not an invasion sport. So human to human reaction is not quite as high of a priority, but we still will start out by doing uh, partner reaction based work where you have to react to the partner based off a hip turn or a shuffle or something like that, a lot of mirror drills. We do a lot of the Marvin Marinovich ball work with reverses and quarter reps and half reps and full reps and things where they have to stay on their toes. Uh, recently, we've been integrating a, a really just fast reaction test where a partner will hold the ball and the, the other partner has to either tap the ball at their feet as fast as they can or their hands to the ground or both or one leg at a time. Um, and that's just an awesome drill for lighting up the nervous system there's a smile on everyone's face when they do it. Uh, it gives everyone a chance to kind of get involved, be a coach, so to speak, to push their partner. And it's fun. And, and we're, you're lighting that athlete up for the next workout or part of the workout. Uh, usually then we'll get to a little bit more of the meat and potatoes, the lifting-based work of it all. And I always finish with ISOs or super slow, extreme ISOs or super slow type work. Um, and in my tennis population particularly, we've seriously seen a reduction in injuries by really swapping out a lot of the traditional lifting and putting in a lot of isometric and super slow type work. And in a lot of those sports where body weight is not a factor, where you do not need mass and armor, um, I think that uh, coaches, we have a lot left on the table by really not exploring uh, the benefits of the isometric and super slow type work. And and if you've noticed my trend of, of all the Jay Schrader uh, disciples and, and mentees I've had throughout this podcast, um, you realize how big of a deal it is and how much it's helped them. And I think it can help you guys a lot as well. So, well, that does it for this uh, solo show, and uh, it was it was good just to sit down and kind of share some thoughts with you guys. Uh, I, I know not uh, it's always fun to have guests. I, I love talking to all the guests who have been on the, this show, but I, I always also enjoy just sitting down and reflecting. And so if you have any thoughts or comments uh, based off of um, mine, I'd certainly appreciate it if you logged on to Just Fly Sports, find the web page for this particular episode, drop me a comment, a line, tell me what you think or, or how you're... Uh, arranging your workouts in a way that gives athletes an awesome experience to just keep those PRs rolling and keep the nervous system in a great place. It really is the art of coaching. Uh, so with that, we'll sign out. We'll be back next week with another great guest. But uh, please visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, supplies of high-end training technology. If you like the show, please give us a rating or review. We would really appreciate you doing that, and we'll see you all next week.